Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg. Um, we've got a super cool guy with us today. His name is Adam Parks. Um, Adam is someone I would like to call, I would say, a serial entrepreneur. Never met anyone with more hustle maybe in my entire life than this guy. Adam is a veteran of the ARM industry. And for those of my listeners who don't know what ARM stands for, we're talking about accounts receivable management. So we're talking about debt. We're talking about recovery um, of all shapes and sizes, personal loans, mortgages, student loans, auto loans, credit card debt, um, and the entire industry that is built around the, the management of that debt in the second half of its life cycle. I know that sounds exhilarating and thrilling to most of you out there. But believe it or not, this industry is a very, very large global industry and an incredibly important part of the entire financial life cycle of most of the debt that keeps the, keeps the globe turning. Uh, when banks and financial institutions issue credit to institutions, believe it or not, sometimes people don't pay back those obligations. Um, so in order to keep the cost of credit low for everybody, banks have to figure out Lenders have to figure out what they're going to do with that debt. So the entire industry uh, that Adam is really focused in is all about figuring out the best ways to monetize those assets and make it so that credit stays competitive for everybody involved. So welcome to the show, Adam Parks. Thank you so much, Dara. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Um, obviously, I, I listen to your podcast at every airport I travel through. Oh, Adam, you're making me blush. And my listeners can't see, but I literally actually am blushing because I am wildly uncomfortable when people pay me compliments like that. Adam's had a really interesting career. He's founded several companies and worked in several different capacities within the arm industry. Um, from the time, I believe you were, I mean, you're not such an old guy now, but you know, when did you get started? Uh, I started in the receivables management space in 2006. So it's been oh. uh, a long I'm, trip. I was, I was, I was going to ask you how old you were in 2006, but I'm not going to do that because uh, anyone uh, anyone who's ever met Adam or wants to Google him right now and look at a picture of him, he is probably, you got a baby face, my friend. That's, that, that, that's all I got to say. Um, but don't let anyone fool you. He's absolutely one of the smartest, shrewdest uh, guys in business that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So since 2006, Adam's done a lot of interesting things within uh the receivables management space, the part that I have always found most interesting was the opportunity that Adam saw for the implementation of technology surrounding the compliance functions within the ARM industry. Now, going back to what I was talking about before, we're obviously talking about really serious business when we're talking about debt, consumers, money, data, um, all of the things that hackers want to take, all of the things that the government wants to regulate. And as a result of that, um, I think Adam was one of the first entrepreneurs really early on to see the opportunity to leverage technology in an industry that was, you know, dare I say, a little bit antiquated. Oh, no question. It was antiquated. Um, and, and to be honest, I kind of fell into it by accident. 
Um, I fell into the the debt collection space by accident. I had been working for an immigration law firm uh, doing EB-5 investment visas. And I kind of saw the, uh, after the residential crash, uh, as the residential market started to fall apart, I saw opportunities in the commercial space. And so we started doing hotel syndications for EB-5 visas. And as I saw the tail end of the commercial market starting to fall apart, I said, all right, I got to find something else to do. And at the time, my roommate worked for an organization in the space and, uh, he was doing really well with it and kind of explained to me what receivables management was. And, and we just kind of jumped into the industry with both feet um, and kind of founded a few companies between you know, uh, brokerages where we're actually trading the debt between the banks and those investment firms that want to purchase the debt known as debt buyers. And that was really a great business. And then as we came over to the technology and regulation side, it was uh, I, I was hired by a company uh, after the CFPB was created. They called me and they said, uh, we really need help with our policies and procedures. You know, we do all the right things, but now we have to make sure that it's all written down. So they brought me in to do the project. It was a, it, it was a, an eye-opening experience for me. I had already done some bank-level consulting during the crash and helping to write some algorithms on the um, kind of uh, mortgage foreclosure side to help people stay in their homes. Uh, and so we kind of looked at it from that perspective. And then as we came over to the really heavy regulated uh, collection side of things. We went in, we wrote this policy and procedure manual. And on the backside, he asked me to be his chief compliance officer, which I, I thought was really cool, but they were in Texas and I'm in Florida. And for anybody that's looking me up online, you're going to tell that I, I spend a lot of time underwater scuba diving and you can't really scuba dive in Houston. So uh, Compliance was born. So going back for just a second. So you're the opportunity that you saw was really sort of at the inception um, of the creation of the CFPB and really when they gained their authority over regulation and rulemaking over the debt collection space, right? Absolutely. It was as the regulators were coming in and they were regulating by enforcement rather than by rule. So uh, the I, I was about to say, you know, how, how many years later, we still don't have any CFPB final rules surrounding the, the debt collection space. But um, that is a comment to both uh, bureaucracy and the way Washington works on, a on the political side. Uh, that is the subject of an entirely different podcast. Well, it, it's but, totally understood. But the, the part that I think is important probably for, for listeners to understand um, is I think that in a lot of ways, the industry, particularly debt buying and debt collection, has really received massive amounts of negative attention for a long time. A little bit of it justified, a lot of it really not. And what I want to make sure listeners come away with is the idea that the industry came a very, very uh, far way in a very, very short amount of time as compared to you know, some of its other... you know financial industry counterparts that had really been used to being regulated in a very heavy way for a very long time. And for anyone to have any sort of perspective, the types of industries that the CFPB regulates, including debt collection um, and lending and other banking functions, you know, banks were used to, you know, the OCC giving them, you know, a twice yearly proctology exam and understanding, you know, the safety and soundness requirements and those processes and procedures. But in the debt collection space, obviously there are laws and rules that govern the industry, but this sort of oversight and regulation was truly unprecedented for the industry back when the Bureau was created. Do you 
kind of concur with that? Uh, ab- absolutely. And it created a situation where all of a sudden there was considerably more work that needed to be done. So as I wrote the first policy and procedure manual that I had worked on, I realized that ultimately I was creating four or five new jobs that were going to require full-time employees to manage. And that's when we started seeing the opportunity for technology because we had a whole lot of groups and companies that had limited resources. Um, Even from a performance perspective, they had limited resources. So when you started to add this whole compliance layer on top of it, it was a massive expense that these organizations were not necessarily, especially the smaller local state level or regional buyers, uh, were really capable of doing. So the only way that we were going to be able to enable them to meet the regulations that were being created through consent orders, really, because there was no playbook or rule book for us to go by. So we just had to, you know, basically read any and every law regulation that was related to the industry and work backwards to build the system to make sure that it pre-answered the questions that were ultimately going to be asked during the audit process. And based on your experience, would you think that industry participants sort of rose to the challenge? Absolutely. You know, I think the cream rises to the top and the sediment fell to the bottom. I think that there's a lot of groups that maybe didn't necessarily belong in the industry that fell out through the regulation. So, um, you know, it's not to say that I'm completely anti-regulation and I think that it was necessary for some rules to be put in place. But I think the industry rose to the challenge even to a higher level. So I, I know that you're aware that I sit on the board of directors for the Receivables Management Association, which is a trade group that is specifically dedicated to the receivable space. And, you know, groups like them came in and actually created their own certification programs to self-regulate and to really demonstrate for, uh, you know, for regulators and legislators that we're taking this seriously and we're taking it seriously amongst ourselves. And it doesn't require as much being pushed down on top of us when at our level, we were perfectly fine, uh, you know, self-regulating and holding ourselves and our peers accountable. I think what you're referring to is the RMAI certification program. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is or thinks that the industry is just completely rogue and people, you know, kind of willy-nilly service and uh, service debt and call consumers and send nasty letters, um, that's really very much not the case. Uh, the RMAI certification program um, requires uh, members of the trade association to essentially self-assess and self-audit at their own cost, so separate and apart from any rules and regulations or regulatory exam. But the association itself wants to make sure its membership is doing what it's supposed to be doing vis-a-vis compliance and the rules. Uh, and I think there's a pretty robust set of uh, set of requirements and modules going all the way from, you know, the way you interact with consumers, hardship policies, data privacy and security, you know, all of the things that are vitally important to, you know, the success and security of an organization. I also believe that the program itself got some attention from some of the federal regulators in a really positive way. Um, I think there was some really good feedback from the FTC uh, originally when the program was first implemented. Am I getting that right? Uh, yeah, you're, you're, it, 
we still continue to this day to see it referenced in various documents that are coming out of the government and they are starting to respect the program. And I, I think part of the reason is that it's not all self-assessment. Um, you know, there are third party auditors that need to go in that have been approved by the association that are going through a specific audit format and going out there and double checking. So it's not like I can just sign off on myself and be like, Oh yeah, no, I'm compliant. I mean, the reality <laughs> is that <laughs> that'd be great, be right? Could you, could you imagine if banks, could you imagine if banks were allowed? to see that that that'd be great wouldn't it be fantastic right if we could just say hey no we are doing things the right way but pinky swear pinky swear swear we're not breaking any rules exactly exactly and i think that you know self-regulation i think is an important part of it and our ability to leverage the technology to bring down the cost structure of actually managing these processes has been extremely important in getting the buy-in of these small business owners um, because in the end you know people generally speaking, don't like debt collection. But there's two things that I always like to bring to the forefront when we talk about debt collection. Number one is, does anybody remember the interest rates of the 1980s? Right, Our ability to collect debt is a direct result of the risk versus reward probabilities of lending money. Why would I, The only thing I can do if I'm lending money and I can't go out and collect it is increase the interest rate to offset my risk points. So, you know, from our perspective, I think that that the collections industry and the receivables management industry does a fantastic job of balancing that. On the other side is as we hear about all this regulation and they want to beat down on the banks and these other organizations, well, I understand their point of view, but I think it's short-sighted because what they're failing to realize is that you may save the consumer $20 today, but you're costing them 20000 in their retirement account because where is all this 401k held? In blue chip bank stocks. So, you know, I, I think that the receivables management industry really does a, a fantastic job of creating a balanced playing field, uh, you know, for the economy itself in terms of the risk versus rewards of lending. And, you know, now, should there be some regulation to it? Yeah, I mean, of course, we have to have some rules. It would be nice if those rules were clean and clear and we could all just run by the same playbook. Um, so I do think that but there's some challenges like from that But then lawyers like me wouldn't have a job, Adam. Then lawyers like me wouldn't have a job. There's still going to be a job because there's always going to be the ambulance chasers out there that are going to sue regardless of whether or not somebody's doing something wrong. And I think a lot of the lawsuits we see are related to that. So, by the way, for those of you who uh, do not appreciate my very unique sense of sarcasm, I was super kidding. Um, I, uh, I think it is incredibly important for rules to be clear and concise um, because ultimately, you know, no organization wants to spend their time litigating nonsense um, and no organization wants to, you know, devote resources to, you know, the legal process when those resources could be better devoted to improving operations, securing compliance, better data privacy and cybersecurity, and so on and so forth. So don't worry. I'm not one of those like evil lawyers who just wants to take your money. Um, I really want to make sure that uh, my clients are doing cool things. And I am one of the, I think, handful of lawyers out there who really embraces technology, uh, which is part of the reason I'm doing the podcast in the first place. But I want to kind of transition to that, Adam, because we've been kind of talking around the use and implementation of technology to one, improve the quality of compliance, but then also reduce the cost of compliance because the regulation uh, is obviously here to stay. I anticipate much more coming on the forefront. There's even talks about uh, certain states, which we can name later, sort of forming their own versions of the CFPB. 
uh, and their own consumer financial protection organizations. Now, there are lots of AG offices already that have their own consumer protection units, but the Bureau was really sort of, um, you know, that was Elizabeth Warren's, you know, baby, for, for lack of a better word. And there are states trying to mimic it. And in part, I think that's because of the wake of what the political atmosphere in Washington is. And, you know, there are some people who may think that the Bureau is not as active as it once was. And that is a direct result of, you know, uh, Washington leadership. That may be true. That may be false. For our purposes, it doesn't really matter because it's still there. The enforcement capability is still there. The rulemaking capability is still there. But certainly it's prompted states to kind of step in and uh, think about doing it for themselves. So long story short is regulation isn't going anywhere, particularly not for this industry. So Adam, talk to me about where the technology opportunities that you saw were. We'll start with that part A of that question and then where you think they're going. Sure. So, um, you know, I think a good way to approach the example of kind of this state regulation versus the federal regulation is just talking about licensing for a minute and all of the different licenses. And I want to say it's like 56 different jurisdictions. It's not even based on individual states anymore, because if you want to collect in New York City, you got to have a license for that. You want to collect in Buffalo, you got to have a license for that. Chicago, Um, too. Yeah, Chicago, you're going to have to have, you know, an individual Chicago license. And so as we look at the kind of the licensing landscape, you have, you know, 56 different jurisdictions that you have to get licensing in. Now, if you're a debt buyer or you're a creditor, not only do you have to worry about your licenses, but you have to worry about the licenses of all of your uh, service providers. So whether it be attorneys, collection agencies, even data providers, those that need to be licensed, you're ultimately being held responsible, not just for yourself, but for anybody who's doing work for you. And that was one of the big opportunities that I saw early on was that I went in and I'm, I'm auditing this shop for a policy and procedure manual, and I'm looking at the licensing situation. And we have two full-time people that are doing nothing but managing licensing, one doing our internal licensing and managing that process, and another that was managing or collecting the licenses from all of the third-party service providers that we were using. And so we were able to, to find an opportunity there to basically uh, automate that process. So we have this on, we had this online system called ComplyArm um, that was basically sitting in the center, all the service providers logged into it. And instead of my one full-time person chasing people down for this license is going to expire, that license is going to expire, we automated the process. Everything was stored in one place. The service providers logged in, provided us with that information. It was really a, a, a cool solution to the problem. And I think that as you look at you know all of these little new CFPBs that are trying to pop up and, and the other ways that the states are trying to, quote unquote, fill the gap that the CFPB has left behind. To me, when I look at the changes at the CFPB over the past couple of years, I mean, what I see is basically they've gone from uh, kind of this random enforcement action style to a little bit more targeted. And it feels like they're still out there regulating, but they're regulating more based on a a targeted basis. You know, they have this giant complaint portal, and I think that they're watching for changes in the data on the complaint portal and those kinds of things. And that's where they're starting to make their picks from rather than uh, drawing names from a hat, I guess would be my best guess as to the old school way. I mean, I think it's probably a little bit more than drawing names from a hat or a, you know, 
using a, using a dartboard to figure out um, what organizations they, they wanted to target. I mean, really the beginning of the, the beginning of the organization, they were going after the big, big players. And that wasn't limited to companies in our, uh, in the arms space. Um, they were after, you know, they were going after Chase. They were going after, you know, lots of uh, big banks because they wanted to kind of retroactively look at things that had happened in the past and all of a sudden decide that they were non-compliant with de facto rules that had never really been codified or written in some way. Uh, and they did it under their UDAP authority, um, which was very broad authority uh, that the CFPB had under the unfair, uh, abusive, deceptive Actices, uh, practices act. I'm pretty sure I got that name wrong, um, but it's... Uh, <laughs> It's the whole industry is giant, giant alphabet soup. It's it kind of, kind of hysterical at some point. I, I'm sure there's a drinking game in there somewhere. Um, but, but no, I, I would agree with you that I think that the act, the activity has has subdued for a lot of reasons. But I do think at least one of those reasons is because they're being a little bit more targeted and they've learned from. I'd say the activities of the Obama administration and certainly under the Trump administration, the organization has been run very, very differently. Putting my own personal predilections about the administration aside, which I have to, particularly when I'm talking to people in this industry, um, (laughs) that's just been the, that's just really been the reality. Um, That's just really been the reality of it. So uh, are you still running ComplyArm? So we sold ComplyArm back in July to a company called Pravana, um, and Pravana had the, uh, I would say we were the two largest uh, software platforms in the space, and they had a lot of other products and services to offer. So back in July, we sold the company to them, and now I'm working with Pravana as an executive advisor, just helping them uh, to understand kind of the debt buyer point of view and perspective and to assist them in obviously transitioning the clients and those kinds of standard uh, you know acquisition pieces um, but just trying to work with them to provide a deeper level of solutions uh, I love consulting and I love uh, and I know you know when, when people hear a consultant they think one of two things right either this guy's a real pro or he just doesn't have a job so he calls himself a consultant um, I, I would like to think that I fall onto the first part of that and that I, I I actually do enjoy going out to these businesses because um, sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees. And, and I love walking in with a unique perspective, having visited more than, oh God, I'm going to say I've been to probably 250 collection agencies, law firms, and debt buyers over the last 15 years. Um, so I think I've got a little bit of a unique perspective and it does bring a little bit of fun to it for me. So what do you see as the opportunities that still remain on the horizon? So a lot of progress has been made. Um, I know the industry is really beginning to embrace technology uh, for compliance functions. And I would say the beginning was really about basic blocking and tackling, um, cr- using technology to create efficiencies, trying to you know eliminate sort of uh, menial work, preventing too much paper from being shuffled around, stuff like that. But I think that there's... I think that there's lots more that can be done, particularly with the implementation of other types of technology, machine learning, AI, et cetera. So I'm really curious to hear sort of your thoughts about where the future opportunities still lie. Sure. So I have have two big areas that I've kind of got a concentration on right now. The first one is the movement of data. 
And if we're going to transfer data back and forth between parties, it's about the security and the integrity of that data and automating that process to remove as much of the human interaction as we can so that we can ensure that we're having uh, the, the best integrity of that information uh, via these transfers. So if I'm buying debt from a bank, I want to make sure that that's coming across cleanly. If I'm placing it with a collection agency, I want to make sure that that's going clearly and cleanly. So I think that that's a big part of it. Um, the second one to me is the consumer experience. And so I've been working hard with a, a couple of different organizations, and, and I also own a marketing firm um, that represents almost a, or over at this point, a hundred debt buyers and agencies. Uh, and our objective in, in building websites for these groups is to actually take the consumer's experience when they were still with the bank and to bring that into the collection space so that they can go online, look at their statements, uh, you know, download key documents, make payments, set up payment plans. I want to make the process as smooth and as clean as I possibly can for the consumers. And I think that the technology from a compliance perspective, you know, you could say it's compliance. You could say that it's not, in my opinion, it's a hundred percent compliance because in the end, the better the experience is for the consumer, the less likely they are to have a problem to complain or to need some sort of resolution that requires a government entity to be involved. It's interesting that, uh, that you're, focused on user experience right now, because I think that um, based on the work that I do in reg tech and fintech, that is really an area of significant focus for the banks as well. Uh, and implementing and utilizing fintech partnerships, reg tech partnerships, um, specifically to improve um, the customer user experience, especially as as their customers are one, becoming more sophisticated with technology and really needing to change the model and the way even the banks are interacting um, with their customers. There are innovation labs at big banks that are dedicating massive resources to, you know, to those processes, that experience. Um, and ultimately, you know, for the banks, it's, it's twofold. One, um, it's a, customer acquisition, if their customer user experience is going to be that much better than their competitors, hooray, that means more deposits and more customers for the bank, but then also the satisfaction of their customers sort of once they're there. You saw that when BBBA acquired Simple, um, and you see that with, you know, sort of all of the focus on bank fintech partnerships. And it's not just about, you know, it's not just about lending. So many times when uh, you know, I talk with people in the arm industry specifically about fintech. They think it's just about lending. They think it's just about online lending and, you know, different ways, peer-to-peer -peer and different ways to originate debt. But it's so, so much broader than that. Um, and customer experience is a massive, massive part of that. It's a massive part of the push in fintech and bank partnerships. Um, so I'm super uh, pleased to hear you identify that as what you think is an opportunity for the arm industry as well. So I've got one more that I want to throw in there, and this might sound a little bit fanboyish, but um, as I've been, you know, traveling around the country listening to your podcast, the other thing that I've started to listen to is about the use of AI and thinking about the experience from the business's perspective. So we keep talking about the consumer experience, but 
How are we going to translate that to improving the lives of those that are actually running the businesses? And so as I was listening to one of the AI-focused podcasts, um, literally while I was on a flight back uh, to Florida last night, um, you know, I, I was thinking about Cointech and some of the things that I've seen from, from, that, from your group and, and what that kind of happens in terms of taking that AI, applying some of the legal technology to it, and then how does that then affect the end user who maybe has a, a, a potential data breach situation and is trying to immediately figure out, you know, what what's my risk level here? Like, what do I have to deal with and, and what should I be concerned with? But I think that there's been some really cool advancements on that side where you're taking this regulation, the legal and the experience, right? It might not be the direct to consumer experience. It is ultimately affecting that because the decisions that are made through tools like that are going to change my decision process, which will directly affect the consumer. But I, I'm I think that that's another area where we're going to start to see a lot more um, happen and see a lot more value coming out of that side because the more that we can reduce our legal fees, allow us to, to kind of focus on our employee experience, you know, the experience of the owners and the experience of the consumers and start to tie those things together. I mean, I think from a, a, an AI legal, as we talk about the robot lawyers and, and other things that I've been listening to, uh, you know, I, I really do feel like that's a, another major area that we're going to see value over the next couple of years. So obviously, Adam, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, from for on my side, um, where I see clients struggle um, and where I see the opportunity, obviously, very is very much focused on legal and compliance. So I decided that I was going to, uh, you know pick my own pocket um, and really start focusing and researching how different technologies could be used to mitigate risk within a business um, on some of the things that I think are probably top of mind for organizations now, whether we're talking about cybersecurity and data breach, specifically for the arm industry in terms of, you know, making sure, making sure consumer communications remain compliant so there's, there's, you know, two products right now that we've developed with the idea of trying to take those, like reduce legal spend, reduce outside legal spend and putting together the power of AI, how we analyze and harness case law to really empower clients to do for themselves. And then like they can call if they still need me or need a lawyer. But the idea being is that we do have so much information. The technology is so sophisticated. There is so much that can be automated and made more defensible and made more consistent if we really figure out how to intelligently implement that technology under the specific set of rules and infrastructure that exists within these organizations. And every organization is unique, so there's got to be flexibility built in as well. Um, but the whole idea is that there is so much there's so much information and the technology is so good. And how do we figure out how to empower organizations to do for themselves and reduce, uh, reduce outside legal spend, reduce outside consultant spend so that they can really focus those dollars where they'll have the most impact. So I think that there's uh, absolutely um, much on the horizon, whether you are talking about different ways for IVA to interact with customers on the phone, um, you know, the 
you look at companies like True Accord who are using um, machine learning um, with email communications for consumers to improve that experience. Um, that's a great example of AI. You've got companies like Attunely who are really focused on the use of alternative data for back of the end, you know, modeling and business processes. Um, there's really so much uh, excitement. I think happening um, around the space and people kind of carving out their own little their own little niches and their own little pockets. Um, but I'd really encourage anyone within the arm industry: um, if this stuff is still scary to you, you know, get on board because it's you know all designed to help you uh, save money and then make money. I think it helps them to optimize their performance too. So by leveraging some of this artificial intelligence, you know, I, I was at a conference yesterday and I heard a gentleman, uh, Gordon Beck, who has built a couple of very large organizations or built a very large national agency. And, and his statement yesterday was one bad call erases a hundred good calls. And, and I don't, I think it's one of the truest statements I've heard in this industry. And, and, and honestly, I, I think the, Ability of us to leverage technology uh, and other compliance-related tools to for that purpose of keeping everything um, as clean and clear as possible. I think we're starting to see more in terms of speech analytics and live monitoring of calls, and you know, really zero tolerance in terms of any collector who's getting on the phone and saying anything that steps out of line. And it may not even need to be an illegal statement. It right. Might just be so it's so. It's, it's tone and it's temperament. And it, it, again, it's about, it's about customer experience. Um, and it's so funny that you mentioned that because honestly, one of the coolest products that I've seen demoed um, in recent history that uh, is, I think, making waves in ARM right now is put out by Interactions um, and their IVA technology and their sort of intelligent human-assisted virtual collector. The first time I heard the demo um, of how this virtual agent and virtual uh, collection assistant worked, I I had to like try really, really hard to figure out whether or not that was a real person or not. And I mean, it like it was that good and it was massively impressive and such a different experience than, you know, I think what we're used to in terms of, you know, traditional soundboard or uh, IVR technology. Not that those technologies aren't great, but to me, this was like completely next level. Um, and I'm like, I'm a skeptic and I, I'm more than a skeptic. I'm a skeptic and a cynic. Um, but I was so blown away, um, by the technology and the kind of the way they're doing it and the amount of time and care and attention that they're putting into, um, the end customer experience, uh, for callers, for, for debt collection calls specifically, because, you know, those are generally not calls that any consumer wants to have, right? They don't, they don't want to be on the phone talking to anybody about this stuff. And the way I feel like they're going about it specifically has honest to God, just completely blown me away. Um, Part of me wishes like, I wish I had an agency that I could implement this technology at, but I don't. So I guess get to talk about well, it on my podcast. <laughs> you've, inspi- you've inspired me. I'll be calling them for a demo later today. Um, oh, it's it's it's, awesome. it's 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 kind of amazing. Um, and I'm you've known me for a long time, Adam. I'm a little bit like cranky and like tough to impress, but this stuff absolutely blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. 
Wow. All right. Well, to hear that coming from you actually means something to me uh, and actually means a, a great deal. So that that's something I'm definitely going to have to check out. I mean, if they're creating consistency in the calls and they're creating a, a positive consumer experience, and if you can do that over the phone, if you can do that online, and then hopefully someday we'll be allowed to send text messages and emails and a more efficient format for more types of products uh, or more types of consumer debt products that have gone into charge off. I think that would be great because the the communication preferences of the consumers has changed dramatically since the FDCPA was written in the 1970s. Um, You know, that was, we were still talking about landlines and and things like that. And now that we've got all this new technology between the text messaging and social media and email and all of these preferred communication methods, I mean, I know if I try and talk to one of my nieces or, or nephews on the phone, I might get three words out of them but they will write me an entire book on a paragraphs and paragraphs of text. No, that's absolutely, uh, that's absolutely right. And by the way, the beauty, I think of the way this type of technology, you know, interactions is a great example. You know, true record is another really good example, but part of what I think makes that so exciting is one, you are getting a better customer experience. You are, communicating with your customers in a new and a different way. But most importantly, because it is all driven by the programming and the technology on the back end, there are massive compliance advantages um, to be had is you implement the rules that you want and the tech, the computer will not break the rule, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The computer, the the IVA will not have a bad day. The IVA will not sound cranky on the phone. Um, And there is all of this additional risk mitigation and compliance advantage that you have. And ultimately, all that does is not only does it improve the, you know, the customer's and the caller's experience, but it it reduces the chance of of a mistake. It reduces the chance of, you know, um, a harassing or abusive phone call under the FDCPA. It just, it just takes so much of the risk away, which for organizations in ARM is really the name of the game. Well, like even early on as we were building Compliarm, one of the things that I was really adamant about having was a consumer complaint portal that was built into the websites of the agencies themselves. And so, you know, early on, as we as we kind of talk about the the regulation side of this um, or the compliance side of it, you know, we wanted to uh, give the consumers a direct communication channel to the agency or to the right person at the agency. Sometimes a collector is not going to be able to handle it; and it needs to go to management or it needs to go to the chief compliance officer. And so, we had originally, when we built it, actually put together a portal that went directly onto the website. And by having that portal, we were able to funnel more of the situations through there. Now, when we went to the government and we presented the platform to the CFPB and explained to them what our methodology was there, they kind of just looked at us and said, that's awesome, because all we really want is for the, you know, for the agency to be responsive and to participate in this conversation. And so I, I think we were able to kind of leverage the technology, the consumer experience, and the regulatory requirements that we were starting to see and kind of tie all of that together, which I I was quite proud of, of being able to kind of put that together. And as we sold the platform to Pravana, that was one of the first features that they decided to put into their IPAC system was the fact that we were collecting that information in that way. So, you know, it was just very exciting to to participate in it. I mean, I know I'm I'm a compliance nerd and, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, we've all had to get we've all had to get comfortable. I think self acceptance is key. 
It's really key. Um, it's how we know we're, you know, maturing as adults. Um, well, I think that's about all the time we have right now. Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, for any of you guys listening, check out Adam Parks, Inc., Branding Arc, all of the amazing things that Adam's doing. If you're interested in anything that I'm doing, check out uh, www.cointech.com. Like I said, Interactions is doing absolutely amazing things. Interactions.com, Attunely, True Accord. These are amazing companies in the arms space that I think are implementing technology in really new and exciting ways. Thank you guys for listening. I will see you in two weeks. Thanks for having me, Deborah. 